few years ago, I had a panic attack on a treadmill in a Planet Fitness on Long Island. I was in the middle of what we thought at the time was a relapse of lymphoma, and my professional life had suffered. And just as I was about to get on the treadmill, I checked my email, and there was an email from a distance learning professor telling me that since I hadn't submitted the last two assignments in time and I had not communicated why, I had failed his course and would have to retake it the following year. I looked at it and thought, I can't possibly deal with this right now, and so I'm going to go do my workout anyway. And I got up on the treadmill, and then I immediately started hyperventilating. I was sweating, but cold sweat, not from the workout. I couldn't catch my breath. I thought I was going to throw up. I come from a family with anxiety disorders, so I had a, a good idea of what was going on but the knowledge of a thing is not the same as the treatment of a thing. Normally, there's a convention in sermon writing where you start with a story at the beginning of a sermon and then circle back to it in your conclusion. But the next step is actually too important to delay it until the end of the sermon. The reason this story ends well is that I first had some sense of what was going on and then was able to get around people that could help. A colleague of mine literally held my hand and told me to breathe for a couple hours. Stacy met me two hours later at a doctor's office where she had called ahead to explain the situation and make an appointment on my behalf. It's an important story to me because it draws out what is most important about mental illness, that we do not do it alone. So it's the holiday season. Tomorrow night is Christmas Eve. Many of us have family coming to town or we're going to visit family. And there's a temptation in the holidays to make them about perfection, to have that perfect Christmas morning. We might call this the, the Martha Stewart tendency of holiday planning, and it is powerful. So last weekend, Saturday Night Live sent this up in a skit with um, Matt Damon and Cecily Strong. In it, two parents curl up on a couch with a glass of wine at the end of a day. This was the best Christmas ever, Matt Damon says. I had a smile on my face from the minute I woke up. And then the skit flashes back to Matt Damon in bed as two kids run in screaming, Mom! Dad! It's Christmas! Wake up! And the camera cuts to a clock, which says 5.45. And then it cuts to Matt Damon rubbing his eyes and saying, Oh, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> Images of the happy couple sitting on the couch are interspersed with flashbacks of the day. It was so nice of your cousin to make the drive is juxtaposed with a shouting match over dinner about wearing a Make America Great Again hat at the dinner table. <laughs> the thing that makes the joke for me is that the characters are honest about how they're describing the day. For them, despite the stress, it, it may have been the best Christmas ever, that the cultural expectation around presenting 
a perfect self at this time of year are very strong. And in reality, it's not just this time of year. The air that we breathe, the culture that we are in continually tells us to present ourselves as fully put together. And nowhere, nowhere is this more obvious than when we're talking about any kind of illness, particularly mental illness. Which is strange, right? Because it's almost cliched to make this observation, but it should be as straightforward to talk about a diagnosis of depression as it is to talk about an x-ray that reveals a broken leg. They're both illnesses with physical causes and ways to treat. Yet, even when we have done work to remove the stigma around, around psychiatric diagnoses, we still don't talk about them as much or in the same way as we do physical ailments. Put uh, uh, concretely, I've talked repeatedly about my diagnosis and treatment for cancer a few years ago. It's a well-known story to most people in this congregation. Yet I have not been as forthcoming that I have also been diagnosed with depression and generalized anxiety disorder in my life. I have at different times been on medication for both of those things. And I wonder why that is. Why we can talk about the one and not the other as much. Even in the absence of shame, the impulse to present ourselves as put together and not in need is powerful. So here are some numbers. The National Institute of Mental Health, a division of the federal government, Department of Health and Human Services, estimates that in a given year, one in five adults in America experience some kind of mental illness. One in 25 live with a serious mental illness diagnosis defined as an illness that substantially interferes or limits one or more major life activities. One in 25. 18% of American adults, that's 42 million people, live with an anxiety disorder. 16 million live with major depression. Another 8.5 million live with either bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 24. And 90% of youth who take their own lives have an underlying mental illness. And for all of that, the percentage of adults who receive treatment for mental illness in a given year who have a, who have a mental illness is 40%. And that number drops dramatically as soon as you start comparing by race or gender. Men of color have a treatment rate of about half that. So a sermon isn't a keynote at a medical conference. It could be, but not this one. <laughs> so I bring up these, these numbers to illustrate the commonality of mental illness. And I can guarantee you, you have folks in your life struggling with this. Every one of us do, with a diagnosis or treatment right now. There are 300 members in this congregation. So if we just take the national statistics and apply them there, that would mean well over 50 have an anxiety disorder or a depressive episode in the last year. 
I'm saying that I am one of the ones with an anxiety disorder. So why are we talking about this two days before Christmas? <laughs> the holidays are a time of celebration. We're going to celebrate a lot tomorrow night. But they can also be profoundly difficult and triggering times. The carol that we sung just now, right before the, the sermon, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, is based on a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He wrote it in 1863. Two years before that, 1861, his wife of 18 years died in a house fire. In November of 1863, weeks before he wrote that poem, he got a letter from the US Department of War saying that his son, who he had begged not to join the army, had been badly wounded in a battle in the Civil War, and they weren't sure if he was going to recover. And that is the context of that poem. Hearing the bells on Christmas Day, not as a time of cheer and joy, but as a time when grief is near the surface, where hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I want to be careful here to keep a distinction between seasonal grief and mental illness. They're, they're distinct things. Each is pretty live in this time of year. A friend of mine from seminary, um, David Hosey, uh, has written a book on, on religion and mental illness, and he puts it this way. For some folks, however, some reminders, reminders of, of the season, cast unwelcome shadows. In a season of expectation and often busyness, anxiety can scuttle out from under bedecked trees. With an overload of celebration in the air, those who struggle with depression can, fi can find themselves feeling left outside in the cold. In the flurry of invitations and parties, the social isolation of mental illness can seem even lonelier. And for those grieving lost loved ones or dealing with family-related trauma, separation, or abandonment, the memories evoked by this holiday season can be painful ones. Here's the other thing about illness and disability. Physical or mental health is not temporary. Let me rephrase that. Health is nothing if not temporary. Yeah, health is temporary. There we go. <laughs> the things that our bodies and minds are able to do change from year to year, sometimes day to day. And that is the way of things. Not one of us will spend our entire lives in a place of perfect health. If we're not struggling during this holiday season, there's a good chance that we have in the past and there's an even better chance that we will in the future. It follows then that it is both the gracious thing to do, but also the self-interested thing to do, to create a culture that treats issues of physical and mental health, not as things to be ashamed of or not spoken of, but as part of life, part of our lives together. Two days ago, this is a true story, I went to a doctor. Because I've been having some pain in my leg beyond just, ah, I think I overdid it yesterday. She did a few tests to eliminate anything seriously wrong with my knee, determined that I have a soft tissue injury from how I was working out, 
and then prescribed a prescription anti-inflammatory and physical therapy to lessen the pain and help me heal, and suggested that I try a different exercise regimen for a while. <laughs> Something about low impact exercise. What would it look like if we could say just plainly to each other, two days ago I went to the doctor. I've been having feelings of being overwhelmed more than usual. She did a few tests to eliminate possible problems, determined that I am in the midst of a depressive episode, then prescribed a low-dose SSRI and therapy for a few weeks to lessen some of the feelings of being overwhelmed and to help me get my equilibrium. And she suggested that I find things, avoid the things that triggered this episode. What if we could just say that? Being able to have conversations like that is vital because life is too hard to do it alone. We need each other, families, friends, communities. We need to be honest with ourselves and as Victoria Stafford writes, our own soul first of all and its condition. The author and teacher Parker Palmer has written extensively on his experience with depression. And one story he often tells goes like this. During my depression, there was one friend who truly helped. With my permission, Bill came to my house every day around 4 p.m., sat me down in an easy chair, and massaged my feet. He rarely said a word, but somehow he found the one place in my body where I could feel a sense of connection with another person relieving my awful sense of isolation while bearing witness to my condition. By offering me this quiet companionship for a couple of months, day in and day out, Bill helped save my life. Unafraid to accompany me in my suffering, he made me less afraid of myself. He was present, simply and fully present. Here's what I hope for all of us, that each of us can be the bill in that story, and that we all have bills in our lives. And the only way that that, that happens is if we're honest about what we're going through, what our needs are, and that we hear when those we care about are hurting and when they tell us what they need. David Hosey continues in that same piece I quoted from earlier. What would it look like instead if during this season we were to welcome in the darkness, to include it in our circle of celebration and care? If on the longest nights of the year we were to make room in our celebrations for the anxious, the depressed, the mourning, the confused? After all, David's a Methodist minister, during this season we remember a family displaced from their homes, seeking for shelter and being turned away. Strangers in what should have been their familial household, but instead feeling like it, they were in a foreign country. What would it mean to welcome those strangers in from the darkness? 
when we welcome in the danger of the darkest night, when we welcome in the stranger from outside our circle of light, we discover that there is darkness in us too, and that it too needs our welcome and our care. When we make space in the midst of this season of celebration for experiences of pain, of sadness, of loneliness, then we find we are making space for our whole selves to truly experience the season. We are embodied beings. I don't believe that there is an Oscar separate from the physical thing that's right here, the person that stands, the person whose leg hurts, and the person whose anxiety occasionally spikes. We are made up of muscle, bone, nerve fibers, and sometimes bones break, and sometimes nerves misfire. And if we can be gentle, present, honest with each other about those times, then we make it through them. May we be that for each other in this place and in our lives.